Right, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. And as Tim said, it, this really is a very familiar passage of Scripture. I don't think for those who have uh, been to church a number of times, uh, you're familiar with this text. But I think about the songwriter, the hymn writer, who uh, wrote in uh, talking about, uh, I love to tell the story, he said, uh, for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. I never get tired of a salvation message. And I understand that, you know, it's Labor Day and you're here. Amen. I'm glad. I got somebody to preach to. And, uh, you know, a lot of other people who are not so... Uh, uh, committed or dedicated would be off, you know, doing whatever. And then, of course, there's obviously uh, people getting together, traveling, visiting family. This is a, sort of the last hurrah before summer ends and school starts and, and all of that. And so uh, I appreciate you being here. And so understanding all of that, I understand I'm probably looking out on a mostly saved congregation. But I just want to say two things. Number one, I don't know who's saved and who isn't. And number two, uh, I've been a church member who was unsaved for some period of time and then later got saved. So, uh, and I'm always aware that there's always that possibility that there may be people who are uh, unsure of their salvation. Let me just say before I begin, you're among friends. My father was a Sunday school teacher. I had made a profession of faith at the age of eight years old. But when I got to be a younger teenager, I really began to question that. What did I really understand? And am I really saved? And uh, finally, uh, I got saved at the age of 15. Now, I was under conviction long before I got saved. But the reason I didn't go forward is I thought in the church, I said, well, everybody already thinks I am. And uh, it would embarrass me. It might embarrass my dad. Uh, there would be, it might embarrass former Sunday school teachers. And uh, let me be clear about something. That hesitation did not come from God. That was the devil whispering in my ear. When I got saved, man, everybody was happy about it. Former Sunday school teachers, my dad, my pastor, my youth pastor. In fact, it was my youth pastor that baptized me. And as I stepped into the baptistry that night, he whispered, Man, this is great, Greg. Amen. He was excited. He wasn't saying, well, boy, I thought you were saved already. And so if there's someone here playing church, and I'm not trying to play the Holy Spirit and convict you, but if there's someone here like that, man, don't go away without Christ. All right. Sermon number two, the real one. Acts chapter 16. And we'll begin reading in verse 23. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. 
But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him uh, the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. The title of my message this morning is The Problem with Religion. The Problem with Religion. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray as we look again on a familiar passage of Scripture and particularly a few verses that are well known to many of us, I pray that you would make the Word of God new again in our hearts. I pray that for those who are saved that they would see not only the simplicity of salvation, but Lord, I pray that they would become emboldened in their witness. And for those who have doubts, who are not saved or who are not uh, at least certain of their salvation, those who are uh, questioning, perhaps those who know they're not saved, I pray that you would uh, show them their need and convict them and bring them to saving faith, Lord. I pray that they would not leave this place until they know you in a personal way. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is man's greatest need? Now, if you've got a, a cable or satellite service or a streaming service, uh, you can turn on any one of the Discovery Channels, and there's been an explosion of these survival uh, uh, programs. And, uh, uh, you know, you ask one of those people who are on such and such an island or way up north somewhere or in the Amazon, and they're going to tell you, well, man's greatest need is food or shelter or clothing or uh, something along those lines. And uh, it's the basic necessities of survival. Others might say that man's greatest need is something a little less tangible, uh, more abstract. Maybe it's education or it's, it's social interaction. You know, God made us a social creature and we need, to, uh, we need that uh, uh, interaction man-to-man. Uh, -man. And uh, other people may say it's self-esteem because if there's one thing we don't get enough of, it's self-esteem. You know, because I don't think highly enough of myself. By the way, that is an anti-biblical doctrine. The Bible says uh, that we uh, ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we should, right? And uh, uh, thinking of ourselves higher than we ought to think is natural, and it's a problem. And yet we have teachers telling people, well, you know, your problem is you just don't think highly enough of yourself, and we've created a generation of self-important entitled <laughs> mediocrities, if I can just be honest, who don't accomplish anything but somehow think that they have. But the truth is, man is most often ignorant of his greatest need. He knows he needs something. He can feel it. There's something there in his heart, and, and God is witnessing to him that, that there's a void there. 
but he spends his entire life searching for that which is missing and yet has no idea what it is. And in the meantime, he stuffs his heart full of vanities, full of emptiness, full of, of things, hoping that those things will fill the void in his heart. Man's greatest need is to know God. Not to know about God. This isn't a theology class, so I'm not anti-theology at all. But I've, I've seen theologians, I've heard their interviews, I've read some of their writings, and they're not even saved. Why? Because they know about God, but they don't know the God of the Bible. There are buildings all around this area. They have the word church either on a sign or on the building itself, and people come in lost. They hear some sort of message, something that tickles their ears, but they do not hear the gospel. They come in lost, they spend an hour, and they turn around and they leave that building in their same lost condition. And the problem is, during the time that they were in the building, they may have learned something about God, though i be perfectly candid, I'm not 100% sure any longer, but they were never told how to know God. And the result is an increasingly irrelevant religious institution or collection of institutions that have little influence on our culture. You tell me, is the church influencing our culture or is our culture now influencing our churches? And before you answer that question, as you think about drive through any one of these little New England towns and uh, take a look at how many churches are flying a rainbow flag, and that's not for Noah's flood. We have turned God's grace, which is what the rainbow was a symbol of. By the way, the Bible says, and I like what uh, uh, Brother Dave said in Sunday school, those words mean something. You know, the Bible doesn't actually say rainbow. It says a bow in the clouds. And that word bow is like an archer's bow. What was God doing? He was hanging up his weapon. He had promised man, I'm not going to destroy the entire world by flood any longer. That's, it's happened. It's done, it's over with, not going to do it again. We have taken a symbol of God's love and His grace and His mercy, and we have turned it into a symbol of perversion. And I cannot think of too many things where we're shaking our fist at God more, and the church is participating in it. Now, I use the church in a loose way. This probably isn't going to fit with... Uh, Jews, Gentiles in the church because those people are not the church, but they claim to be. When Paul came to Philippi, he did not bring with him a new religion. He brought with him a message that can bring reconciliation between a righteous God and sinful humanity. And the message of Jesus Christ is always opposed by those who hate God. And certainly Philippi was no exception. In a short period of time, Paul found himself in trouble with the Roman government there at Philippi. And after being publicly beaten, Paul and his partner in ministry, Silas, were put in custody of a Roman jailer and thrown into prison. And I thought about that jailer, and I thought about if you were in his position... What would you have witnessed? He was given a charge, and the Bible says he 
took Paul and Silas and put them into the inner part of the prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I think it's interesting. Paul didn't kill anybody. He wasn't robbing people. Wasn't beating anybody up, no assaults. Wasn't vandalizing property. Wasn't starting fires. He was just preaching the gospel. And yet he was the threat. History repeats itself. We live in a world where people who have the approved messages are able to wave their flags and carry their banners and set fire to buildings and beat people up, kill people in some cases. And if they do get, most of the time they're not even arrested, but if they are, they're quickly released on bail. And other people who voice the wrong opinions, those that are not approved by the official organs of our society, will rot in a prison until such time those in charge seem fit to release them. One is a threat to your safety, one is not. And the one who's not is the one who spends more time in jail. It's backwards. It's backwards. But that jailer, he thrust Paul in and he... If you're sitting where he is, or you're standing where he is, and you're looking at Paul and Silas, I'm sure he heard at least some of Paul's preaching. He heard Paul's prayers from jail. He became acquainted with Paul's message. The jailer also saw Paul's joy. I am sure, and I don't know how long he was a jailer, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I am sure it wasn't often that somebody in the prison was so joyful that they were singing praises to their God. I'm sure that he heard a lot of curses, uh, a lot of uh, uh, anger and vitriol, but he didn't hear uh, the joy of the Lord like he heard it from Paul. He also saw Paul's commitment to Christ. I'm sure, again, that Paul was told to shut up and he wouldn't. And that's when he was arrested. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that. I am speculating a bit. But it seems quite, uh, based on other passages of Scripture, it seems that these people were given warnings about what they were saying, and he simply would not recant. He would not be quiet. And what the jailer saw was Paul's commitment to Christ. Paul and Silas were uh, willing to suffer for their faith. Not only that, he saw the power of Paul's God. Even a pagan jailer understood that that earthquake that freed Paul and Silas from their stocks was not a coincidental natural occurrence. That was something ordained by God. Not only that, but he saw Paul's compassion. When Paul and Silas could have escaped, they chose to stay. And their escape would have brought most likely the execution of the jailer. And instead of seeing an earthquake uh, as an opportunity to flee, they saw it as an opportunity to minister. In short, when the Philippian jailer looked at Paul and Silas, he saw two men that were very different than any he had ever met, certainly different from himself. 
And in that moment, he saw his need for God. And, and being an employee of uh, either the city of Philippi or, or some instrument of the Roman government, the Philippian jailer knew that there was accountability. He had known accountability. And the Bible tells us that Man is a sinner by nature. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody left out there. But then that principle of accountability, if the Roman government held him accountable, certainly Paul's God would hold him accountable. And Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And death is not merely the natural cessation of life. You stop breathing, your heart stops beating. No, it's It's not just that, but the Bible describes eternal conscious suffering of those who do not know Jesus Christ at the time of their natural death. Philippian, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 tells us, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And uh, what would that be like? Well, Revelation chapter 14 verse 11 tells us, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. The Philippian jailer knew he was in trouble. But when he considered all that he saw in the Apostle Paul, he considered Paul's joy and his commitment, his compassion. He must have said to himself, these prisoners have something that I need. They have this irrepressible hope in a God who is real, completely different than the religions and false gods that he had known. And at that very moment that the jailer thought the prisoners had all escaped, that moment when he had determined to kill himself rather than suffer the humiliation of a Roman trial and, again, most likely an execution for their escape, out of the darkness he heard Paul cry, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And in that moment, I'm sure there was a uh, jumbled mess of confusing thoughts. The first thought probably is, he must have thought, wow, I'm alive. That's great. But then it hits him, what these prisoners have, the God to whom they've been singing, And the God that they are praising, the God to whom they are praying, must be real. What they're saying must be true. And if they're telling the truth, then I'm in a horrible position. I'm not in trouble with the Roman government, but I am in trouble with a much higher authority. I'm in trouble with God. And then that moment he came to terms with his lost condition. And trembling with conviction, he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the Philippian jailer is no different than any person who's ever lived. The only difference between him and anybody else is the fact that he understood once and for all his greatest need. And knowing his need, he decided to do something about it. He didn't push it to the back of his mind. He said, what must I do to be saved? This morning, I want you to think about your condition.
Every single person who hears the gospel must respond to your own personal need for salvation. And you'll notice I say personal need. You are in a church, but sitting in a pew isn't going to save you. You're not saved because other people around you are saved. And so this morning, consider your personal need for salvation. The first thing I want you to see, and we're going to draw all three points this morning from verse 31 of our text, again, a very well-known verse, but the first thing I want you to see is the Redeemer. The Redeemer, that's Jesus Christ. The man asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in verse 31, and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. The Redeemer of mankind is Jesus Christ. He is the one who purchased man's sins. The first word spoken there is believe, and we will get to that in our second point. But faith always has an object. People who are not lost are not, I'm sorry, people who are lost, rather, are not without faith. They believe something. And an atheist believes something. He believes he has all the answers. He believes he's okay. He believes there's nothing after this life. And so faith has an object, and that's... The most important thing is our Redeemer is Jesus Christ. He is the object of faith. Sin has placed man in a terrible position before God, very precarious. God is holy. That means that He is separate and distinct from man because of His righteous nature. In contrast, man is separate and distinct from God because of His sinfulness. And uh, the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 1.13 wrote, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. God doesn't want to look on our sin. He can't look on our sin. We have made ourselves uh, estranged from God by our sin. And man is unable to pay for his own sins. Without Jesus Christ, man is in a hopelessly lost condition. The word gospel means good news, and this is a gospel-preaching church, and I've got some good news this morning. You don't have to stay lost. You don't have to wander around hoping that someday heaven is your home. You don't have to wonder what it takes to know God. God loves you. In fact, He loves you so much that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for your redemption. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And in verse 8 of that same chapter, Romans 5, But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. Hmm. What's God saying? You know, we have in our minds, well, I'm a pretty good guy. Well, good people go to hell. Good people by our estimation. Because the Bible says there's none good. See, if you were good, if we were really good, not good by an earthly standard, not good by comparing ourselves with each other, but really good, there'd be no need for the cross. Jesus wouldn't have had to die. He wouldn't have had to be crucified. He wouldn't have to shed His blood. 
And here it is. You come to church on a Sunday morning so you can hear about the problem of religion. I know that seems backwards, but the problem with religion is that it offers many ways to heaven. Religion looks at the issue of salvation as if it's a multiple choice question. And Jesus is just one option of many. But Jesus claimed exclusivity for salvation. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And Peter fearlessly testified to a hostile group of religious leaders, and the subject came up of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And those words all mean something. Jesus was his given name. That is sort of the Greek equivalent of Joshua of the Old Testament, Jehovah saves, or Jehovah is salvation. Christ, the anointed, the Messiah of Nazareth, where he is from, his heritage. In other words, we're not talking about any Jesus, any Joshua. We're talking about that one. And Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Listen, if you're going to be saved, you're going to come the Jesus way because he is the Redeemer. None other name, no other name but the name of Jesus. And if you're going to respond to your personal need for salvation, the first thing you need to understand is that Jesus is the only way to heaven. He alone purchased your salvation. So we see the Redeemer. As you consider your spiritual condition and assess your personal need for salvation, I want you to see not only the Redeemer, but number two, the requirement. The Redeemer is Christ. The requirement is faith. Verse 31, the jailer has just asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in verse 31, and they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas what he had to do in order to be saved, His emphasis seems to be on doing something. What must I do? I think that's natural. That's, we all ask that question, not necessarily about salvation, but any number of things. You go somewhere and somebody says, oh, well, you can't do this or that. We say, well, why not? Well, you didn't fill out the forms or you didn't do this or you didn't do that. And you say, well, what, what do I need to do? Well, you can't participate in this. Okay, what do I need to do to participate? So here, uh, and we all have experiences like that. And so here the man says, what must I do to be saved? And I'm sure he was shocked by the simplicity of Paul's answer. God is not looking for man to perform a particular work. The work is done. Jesus already performed it. You cannot add to the work of redemption that Christ performed on Calvary's cross. And there is... One of the problems with religion, religion says do. Bible-based Christianity says done. We used to sing a song when I was, uh, when Diane and I were working in the bus ministry years ago with children. Done, done, D-O-N-E. Done, done, done perfectly. Finished, Christ cried when on Calvary he died. So it's done, done, done. 
That's children's song, but there's a lot of good theological truth in that. Christ's cry from the cross was, it is finished, John 19.30. And we know that His finished work of redemption was accepted by His Holy Father in heaven because three days later, Jesus rose again from the tomb. Religion says, well, there are many ways. Religion says you have to do certain things, but Jesus says, no, I'm the only way. The work is done, but you need to believe. And some might scoff and say, well, what's the difference between Jesus and any other religious leader? Why Jesus? Well, Jesus is the only one with an empty tomb. See, Jesus is still alive. That empty tomb means something. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. Buddha is dead. And we could go right down the list of religious leaders, people who have started various movements. None of them are alive. None of them conquered the penalty of sin, which is death, except for Jesus. And the Bible says He's seated at the right hand of the Father and He makes intercession for the saints. And the problem with religion is its emphasis on man's action. Religion is man's attempt to gain favor with God. And so the issue for us this morning is not how do we pay for our sins. The sin debt has already been paid by Jesus. The issue is how do I appropriate Christ's payment for sin? I used a, an illustration this morning and <clears throat> young people... You may have heard about this. Those of us who are a bit older, we remember. Young people, they do everything on their phone. You got to pay a bill, oh, Venmo me, here's uh, this. Uh, I don't even know how that works. Uh, but we used to write these things called checks, right? And if someone writes you a check and it's made out to you, so you get the check and it says, pay to the order of your name, $50. And you go to the bank and you go, you know, I, I want the cash for this. What do you got to do? You present it to the bank and sometimes they slide it back to you and they say, you forgot to endorse it, sign the back. And you flip it over and you sign it. What are you saying when you sign it? You say, I want that. Give me the money. In a similar way, Jesus has written the check for your salvation. Your sins have been paid for. But how do you get the payment? How do you apply His payment for sin and make it applicable to you to put it into your account? How do you endorse that check? Well, the Bible's clear. Believe. It's just faith. How does man put the payment for sin into his own account? And the answer is very simply by faith. By simply trusting Jesus Christ, by believing that his death on Calvary's cruel cross was sufficient to pay for your sins. You can't add anything to that. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad that God made salvation so simple for mankind. I'm glad Paul was there to answer the jailer's question. An expert in religion probably would have given a different answer. They would have said something like, well, get baptized and join the church and do your best to keep the Ten Commandments and take your first Holy Communion and go to confession and do penance and tithe to the church, get married in the church, pray the rosary, 
have the rights administered, no, knock on a certain number of, uh, of doors, and maybe after all of that, maybe you'll get to heaven. It's a lot of uncertainty. That's a lot of work for a lot of uncertainty. Performance-based salvation reeks of man's pride. We can never do enough to earn salvation. It was all of God. It was His mercy and His grace that saves any of us. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. You get that? That's, I, I don't know. If I were a paraphraser of the Bible, I don't even know how I would paraphrase that verse. That's, that's about as clear as it can be. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Today's my birthday. It is. Yeah, thank you. I wasn't going to say anything because then everybody, ah, oh, you know, it interrupts the... But you know what? My wife... Back at home, I've got some gifts sitting in my office in the chair. Uh, this morning, she set them there with a, a birthday card. Do you know what I have to do to get those gifts? I just have to receive them. Just, they're mine. I don't have to earn them. They've already been paid for. I, I, there's nothing I have to do. It's a gift. The moment you begin to work for your salvation, it is no longer a gift and you've made Christ a liar. When my wife gave me the presents, I didn't pull money out and say, now, honey, what do I owe you? But there are people that go to church and they're hearing a message about what they can do to earn favor with God. And that's a problem. It's performance-based religion. It's performance-based salvation. And it stinks in the nostrils of God. And so if you want to respond to your personal need for salvation, you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Because through your works, you will never obtain the righteousness of Christ. And I've hit on a couple of points there, but the idea is this. You're sinful. Jesus is righteous, and it is your sin that has separated you from God. And what we need is we need the righteousness of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ comes only by faith. And it is placed into your account the moment you trust Jesus Christ as Savior. And so, this morning as you consider your spiritual condition and your need for salvation, I want you to see first off the Redeemer. That's Jesus Christ. Secondly, the requirement. That's faith. But thirdly and lastly, I want you to see the result. The result is salvation. Again, verse 31. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Paul made a promise to the jail. That's a promise. Belief 
on the Lord Jesus Christ guaranteed salvation to the jailer, and it still works that way today. In fact, he says, and thy house. Now, let me just pause and say this. I've seen a number of times where one person in a family gets saved and the rest of the family gets saved. Sometimes it's a, a child, and you're able to reach into the home and preach the gospel to mom and dad, and they get saved, and brothers and sisters get saved, and the family is transformed. Sometimes it's a wife. If it is, and, and by the way, there's varying degrees. There's nothing about this that is... Uh, set in stone, uh, but the, uh, most often, if it's a man, usually once the man gets saved, everybody follows. But that's really not what's being said here. What's being said when he says, and thy house, the idea here is this. The members of your household, if they want to be saved, they can believe on Jesus, and if they believe on Jesus, they'll be saved. In other words, we don't have classes of salvation. There's not a, a way for a rich person to get saved and a way for a poor person to get saved, a way for a black person to get saved and a way for a white person to get saved. By the way, that is a message that needs to be repeated often because we live in, in, in a uh, society and a culture now that is divided by class and along racial lines, and now everybody is so quote-unquote different, and we're not different. At our hearts, we're sinners that need a Savior, and I don't care what you look like, I don't care who your mom and dad is, and I don't care how much money is in your bank account or where you work for a living. It's a promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Salvation always occurs at the moment that a sinner believes on Jesus Christ. Salvation is another word for deliverance. The natural born man is on his way to hell. Again, I'm not here to, you know, I, I don't, I've met some preachers sometimes who really delight in preaching on hell as if, yeah, you know, I'm like, nah, it's not me. I don't delight in other people suffering. And so this comes as a warning. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. And you say, why? The Bible doesn't leave us hanging. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. By the way, that goes back to that Redeemer thing, right? That one way, Jesus Christ. Before his belief in Christ, man is on his way to hell. But after salvation, he's on his way to heaven. Jude 23 tells us that those who are saved have been pulled out of the fire. And Paul wrote that for the believer to be absent from the body meant that he was present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. And so salvation brings a, a change of eternal destination, but there's more than that. You know, I, I, heard a, I read a quote recently by a, uh, a Bible scholar from 100 years ago or so, and he said, and I don't have the exact quote written down, but he said, everybody wants to be saved from hell. I mean, that takes no particular, uh, you don't have to be that smart to figure it out. I, let's see, mm, I'm going to die someday, going to spend eternity somewhere, don't want it to be hell. But he said, people want to be saved from hell, but not saved from sin. Let me say this. If you really trust Christ, 
You've placed your faith in Him. Not only does salvation bring a change of eternal destination, but it also brings a change in your desires. New destination, new desires. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. See, a new believer in Christ suddenly has a desire to resist the temptation to sin. I've, <clears throat> I've worked we, uh, where I attend church on Sunday nights. They have a, a, an addiction ministry. The, some guys get together and meet on Fridays. And I've talked to the guy that runs that ministry. And he's talked about even for Christians how hard it is sometimes when you've lived your life and, and, and you've been addicted to drugs or alcohol. or And he didn't talk about others. But it could be pornography or some other uh, sexual perversion of some kind, and, and, and you've developed that as a lifestyle. Man, that's hard to break. We are creatures of habit. And, uh, but you know what? Just having a desire not to do those things, man, that's, that's half the battle. Not only have your desires changed when you trust Christ, but the new believer finds he has a strength to resist that wasn't there a little bit earlier. You say, well, why is that? Well, when the new believer trusts Christ, he becomes indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And according to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the, from the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit works in us to, to make us more like Jesus Christ, conform to the image of Jesus Christ. You say, does salvation work? Well, let's think about the Apostle Paul the one who gave the answer here. Really, he was, if not a murderer, an accomplice to murder. His, he uh, held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. His sole purpose in the life at the time that he met Christ on the road to Damascus was to arrest Christians, to bind them, to bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial before the council. We believe that's probably the Sanhedrin. And if necessary, they would kill those people. But, G but Paul, on the road to Damascus, met Jesus Christ. He had a life-changing salvation experience. And he became a champion of that faith that he once sought to destroy. And the problem with religion is it offers a hope so, but never quite sure salvation. Oh no, Paul was sure. Paul said, I know what I was, I know what I am, I am not all that I ought to be, but praise the Lord, I am not what I was. And 1 John chapter 5 verse 13 tells us, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. And then it goes on, it says, and that you may believe on the son, name of the Son of God. The idea is sitting in a place like this, even if you're saved and hearing a salvation message, it once again reinforces, hey, this faith in Christ thing really works, and it's I'm on the right track. And it strengthens our faith in Jesus. And so you can know that you are saved and on your way to heaven. I've presented that idea to people over the years, and sometimes you go, well, that's awfully presumptuous. Well, Jesus gave me permission. The jailer responded to Paul's witness, his preaching, his prayers, his praises. 
And when Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, the jailer believed. And he freed Paul from the prison and washed his stripes. By the way, you say, you know, I'm looking through here and I never see... It says, verse 32, they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all his house. And then it just says, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his... It never says that the jailer believed. We know the jailer believed. Why? Because there's the evidence, a changed life. Everyone who was saved that night was baptized. Now think about that. They came out of a pagan background. And, and, and I am not against, I don't want you to misunderstand me. They're, they're, we absolutely need to be instructed in the Word of God. I'm not against that. But you know, they didn't wait for him to go through some sort of class to be baptized. He was saved. He made a profession of faith. And he was baptized. And the next day, Paul was officially released from prison by the Roman government at Philippi. And upon his release, Paul went back to Lydia's house. And we didn't read those verses about his introduction to her and all of that. But he, he met with those who had gotten saved while he was in Philippi. And in the short time that Paul and Silas were there in Philippi, a church was established, and Paul wrote a letter to that church that's still preserved for us in the Word of God, and that is the Epistle to the Philippians. But wherever Paul went in Philippi, the message of salvation was on his lips. He was a gospel preacher. Paul wanted to make clear how a man can be right with his God how he can have his sins forgiven, how he can obtain the righteousness of Christ, and in short, how he can know God. And the problem with religion is that it obscures salvation. I've listened to some people. I've been in different churches over the years. And sometimes they make salvation so hard. And I come away wondering, if I were someone who didn't know anything about the Bible, what would I think about how to get to heaven? What would I think about how to know God? What else could be clearer than Acts chapter 16, verse 31? Jesus died on the cross for man's sins, and he rose again three days later, and he's the only redeemer of mankind. We cannot earn salvation, but Jesus paid for it, and he offers it as a free gift. And the only thing required to receive that gift is that we trust him. And if you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible promises you will be saved. That's the result. That's a promise from God. And so this morning, if you're sitting there and you're wondering to yourself, what must I do to be saved? Let me answer with confidence. As Paul and Silas, and, and by the way, they both answered. The Bible says they answered him. Didn't have to think about it. Didn't have to consult with one another. And the whole church ought to be saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Every person must respond to his personal need for salvation. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here and you do not know Christ as your Savior, you say, Pastor, I, I'm not 100% sure that I'm saved. I, I, don't, I can't ever think of a time in my life when I came to Christ believing in His finished work. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Would you pray for me? And heads are bowed, eyes are, eyes are closed. Nobody is uh, uh, looking around, and I won't call your name. I wouldn't embarrass you for the world. 
I just want to pray for you. Is anybody like that? Say, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Anyone? All right, let's pray. Father, I pray for these here in attendance. Uh, thank you for their attendance. Glad they got up on a holiday weekend and came to church. I pray now that through this message, we would be emboldened to preach the gospel. That like Paul, we would have a heart of compassion and a willingness, if necessary, to be scoffed and scorned and to suffer a little bit for your sake. I pray that you would, uh, that this message would penetrate our hearts. I pray that our gratitude for you would grow. What you've done for us would be uh, just, uh, uh, it would hit us again. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.